All right. Happy New Year. My name is Matt Kozer. I'm the college ministry director here at Citadel Square. And I'm excited to get to be up here this morning to open the word and to be the first message you guys have heard this entire year. This is exciting. Uh, we're going to take a week off this week from the Luke series that we've been walking through. We're actually going to be in an Old Testament passage that maybe you wouldn't expect on a day like today, on this New Year's Day. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 375, book of Nehemiah chapter 8. So here we are, stepping into a new year. And, you know, New Year's time is, is an emotional time. The holidays are over. I guess the cold weather is over, too. Uh, there's a fresh feeling in the air going into this new year. But everybody comes into the new year in a different way. You know, you have the, you have the resolutions people. Is anybody a resolutions person? You've been making New Year's resolution? Okay, like three of you, three people make resolutions, that's awesome. Yeah, you got your list of, hey, I'm going to sleep less this year, I'm going to eat more salads, I'm going to go to the gym more this year, and you can't believe that there's, you know, everybody else sitting in the pews next to you that don't have a list of their own resolutions, but that's okay, because there's also the anti-resolutions people. Does anybody know an anti-resolutions person? Like, you know what, those people sitting next to me that make resolutions, I know they're going to fail. I know that that's not going to work out for them. And why should I make my own resolutions when I can just take the year a day at a time and just enjoy it? If I don't make resolutions, I can't fail them, right? And then you have the rest of us who are just too busy. We haven't even started thinking about the new year yet. We're like, what, January 1st already? But no matter where you are, whether you're a resolutions person, whether you're a non-resolutions person, whether you look at 2020. Three, that's weird to say, whether you look at 2023 with excitement or whether there's pain and difficulty following you into this new year from, from last year, we're all hoping. We're all hoping that this coming year is going to be better than this past year. But you know, if we, if we take time to slow down and we think about it, we have this nagging feeling, each of us, have this nagging feeling of our own weakness, our own failure. You know, I'm sure you could look back on 2022, maybe even on this last week, and you can think about how you've let other people down, or maybe other people have let you down, or you can see how things just didn't go the way that you hoped that they were going to go in 2022. And those are the same feelings and the same thoughts that we're going to see here in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to look at a group of people who are actually also sitting on the edge of a new year. And if they look back, they can see generation after generation after generation of failure. And you know, even though they're at this, this start of the new year, even though there's this anticipation that they're feeling, when they look forward, it's a, it's a fragile future. You know, what's, what's to keep this year from becoming just like all the other ones before them? What's to keep them from just falling back into the same failures, the same weaknesses from last year? What are they going to look to to overcome their weakness? 
And that's the same question that each of us are facing this morning as we step into 2023. When you think about your failures, your weaknesses, what do you look to to overcome your weakness? And in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 8 that we're going to look at in just a second, we're going to see this group of people finds an answer to this question that results in a joy that overcomes because this joy is in the Lord. And that's my hope for us this morning as we look at this passage and and as we step into 2023, that we'll be able to step into this year with a joy that overcomes our weakness, a joy that's in the Lord. Wouldn't that be awesome to get to the end of this year and to be able to look back and say, man, you know, there were ups and downs in 2023, but man, this was a year full of joy. That would be awesome. That's my hope for today. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into this passage. God, I praise you that you are a God that we can sing to, that you are a God that we can worship, that as Addison just said, that you're a God who gives us your word that has come near to us. And so as we look at your word this morning, I just ask that you would work deeply in our hearts, that for those who have never experienced joy in you before, that they would experience joy in you as a result of looking at your word this morning. And for those who have, I pray that you would renew that joy, that you would deepen that joy in us. We're excited about what you're going to teach us this morning, what you're going to remind us of about who you are. And so I ask that you would be with us, that your spirit would be at work. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. You guys there? All right, let's go. Verse 1. And all the people gathered. All right, pause right there. Who are these people? And what are they doing here? All right, we're stepping, obviously, right into the middle of a conversation. We're, we're in chapter 8. We're not starting in chapter 1. So what's, what's going on? Anybody know what book comes before the book of Nehemiah? Ezra. Awesome. Yeah, Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah are actually, even though they're two separate books, they're actually one big story. And this story chronologically is happening at the very end of the Old Testament. So it's about 400 years before Jesus comes to the earth. And this story is actually split up into to three separate smaller stories, three separate little pieces. And at the start of each of these stories, the, the people, people of Israel are in exile in the foreign country of Persia, okay, the superpower. And with each story, we see a wave of these exiles that come back into Israel, back into Jerusalem. And each wave has a leader that leads them back and that brings about some sort of major reform when they arrive back home. So here they are. The exiles are finally home, but it's a wreck. Now, if you've ever evacuated for a hurricane, you maybe have just like a touch of an idea of what it's like to come back and everything is a wreck. Some of you guys are like, I never evacuate for hurricanes, so you have no idea what this is like. But they come back and it's a mess. Their houses are a wreck. The temple is a wreck. Their city walls are in ruins. But you know what? There's a deeper ruin that they're facing here as they come to Israel. It's actually a spiritual ruin. Because the reason that the people were taken into exile in the first place was because generation after generation, the people of Israel had just disregarded God's law. 
And that's why they're in exile. So the physical ruin that they come back to is a tangible reminder, a tangible expression of the spiritual ruin in their, their own weakness, their own failure. So as each wave of the exiles come back, not only do they commit to, to physical reform, to rebuilding, but they also commit to spiritual reform, spiritual rebuilding. And with each of these stories, you know, they all start great. They all start off with this excitement. But if you get to the end of the story, they, they keep ending in disappointment. They keep ending in failure. So story number one, they come back. They rebuild the temple. But once the temple is rebuilt, there's mourning, there's weeping, because the people realize, man, this temple is nothing compared to what the temple used to be. Story number two, Ezra is the leader. And Ezra leads people back, and he teaches them God's law. And the people commit to God's law, and it's like, man, this is, this is awesome. This is looking good. The people are back to where they need to be. But, but by the time you get to the end of the story, story number two with Ezra, people are just breaking their commitment. They're again living in opposition to God's law, and it's just a mess. And then you get to story number three, and this is where the book of Nehemiah starts. And Nehemiah is a political leader. Ezra is a spiritual leader. He fails. Nehemiah is a, spirit, uh, a political leader. Hopefully, you know what? Maybe we can trust the politician. Maybe he can fix things when the spiritual guy can, right? That's how it works. But Nehemiah comes back. He helps the people rebuild the wall. And this is a significant rebuilding project because this is, this is the last one of the physical projects that they have to do before the, the city is completely done. So maybe now that the city is finally physically rebuilt, maybe now it'll be the time where the spiritual rebuilding can be complete, where there's spiritual restoration that the people are experiencing. So that's how we come to this point in chapter 8. What are the people going to do? The city is rebuilt. What's going to happen? What are they going to do with this fresh start? What are they going to do with this anticipation waiting for them? Look at the rest of the verse, and we'll see what the people do. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So now that the city is done, what do the people do? They gather together. They're unified as one person. And they ask Ezra to read the book of the law of Moses. Anybody know what books make up the law of Moses? Yes, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this is interesting also because who do we see here? We see Ezra. This is Nehemiah's book, right? We haven't seen Ezra for the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. Last time we saw him, he was at the end of story number two. Remember how story number two ends? Ends in failure, remember? He teaches the people the law. They're like, yeah, let's do it. And then they fail. So here he is again. They want him to teach the law again. But there's one big difference between this story and the last one. This is interesting. Last time, Ezra is the one who's gathering the people together. But who, who's gathering the people together this time? The people. The people are actually gathering Ezra and gathering everybody together. They want to hear from God. So let's see, let's see what Ezra does in verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. 
What's, what's the seventh month? Anybody know? All right, it's not July. It's a trick question. Commentators say that according to the, the Jewish calendar, the first day of the seventh month was actually their new year. So this is, this is their January 1st, just like us. All right, so look at verse 3. This is what Ezra does. And he read from it, he read from the law, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's a long, long message. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So, so Ezra gets up, he starts reading, and nobody falls asleep. This is crazy. This is a long message. Nobody falls asleep. The kids don't run off. They're listening. Everybody's leaning in. Has anybody ever read the book of Leviticus before? You know, it's not like reading Dr. Seuss. It's got some, some deep and some dry stuff. So why in the world would the people be leaning in so much? Why would there be so much attentiveness on this book, on this reading? It's because the people realize that this isn't just a nice addition to their lives. You know, this isn't just some helpful, some good information for them to be able to take into their New Year's. They realize that this book is literally a matter of life and death for them. Because remember, the reason that they've just come out of exile, the reason that they were in exile, is because they failed to listen to this book, the Law of Moses. You know, their city walls have been complete, but they realize, man, we're still in the midst of a spiritual battle. Is that true of you? Do you recognize that the words of this book are a matter of life and death to you? Do, do we recognize that? You know, maybe you're, you can look at your life and you're experiencing relative ease. Yeah, you know, I'm assuming nobody in this room has ever been in, in exile before. <clears throat> But have the good circumstances in your life dulled your spiritual awareness to the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on? Every single person in this room is experiencing, is in the midst of a spiritual battle. This church is in the midst of a spiritual battle. Maybe you, maybe you are facing uncertainty. Maybe you're facing financial difficulties. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Or maybe there's something else that has just disrupted the rhythm of your life. Is your goal when you feel this difficulty in your life, is your goal just to get back to the safety and to the comfort? Or do you realize that the pain that you're feeling is revealing a deeper spiritual battle for your heart? Do you realize that you need the words of this book? You need God's words more than just good circumstances. So here they are. Everybody's listening to the book being read. They recognize that this is going to affect their lives. This is going to affect their kids' lives. This is going to affect their kids' kids' lives. So everybody's leaning in. Verse 3 has given us a summary of what's happening in this setting. So we'll see in verses 4 through 6, it's going to paint in the details of what the leaders are bringing to them and what the people's response is to this. So look at verse 4 with me. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood 
Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Whew, we made it. If you're looking for a list of good baby names, there you go. <clears throat> and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So most likely this list of guys that was just mentioned, they're representatives of the people. The things that Ezra is reading, they're, they're important, they're applicable to every single person that's listening to the words being read. So picture, picture yourself in this situation. Imagine Steve gets up next week. He comes up on stage, gets ready to preach, and he starts calling people to come up and join him on the stage. You know, he calls AJ, he calls Ben, he calls Phil, he calls Dave, and all of a sudden, all these guys start coming up with him on stage, and the stage is packed. We're all sitting there like, what in the world is Steve about to say with all these people up on stage with him? And that's, that's what the people are feeling here in this, this moment in their lives. Ezra is up to read the law. The stage is packed full of people. The anticipation is building in them. And up until this point, we don't, we don't actually have a clue what Ezra has been reading, right? But in verses 6 through 10, we're going to see the first time we get a glimpse into what Ezra, what the leaders are going to speak to the people. What do they need to hear in this moment in their lives? Look at verse 6 with me. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. How do the people react when Ezra directs them to the great God? Think about it. Maybe they've been reading Genesis 1. This is the God who spoke the heavens and the earth into, into existence. This is the God who took a 99-year-old childless man and made him the father of many nations. This is the God who thundered down on a mountain and gave Moses the book that Ezra is reading right in front of them. And how do they react as Ezra directs their eyes and blesses the Lord, the great God, with hands raised, heads bowed, worship. And have you noticed the emphasis that we see on all the people? All the people gathered together, all listen, all worship. 11 times we see a reference to all the people. So now as all the people are praising God, as Ezra is standing on a packed stage, other leaders start going through the crowd. They start making sure every single person is understanding what's being read, what's being spoken. Because if they don't understand, what's, what's the point of this entire situation? There can be no spiritual renewal without their understanding. So look at 7 and 8. It tells us about the people that go through explaining it to the people. Here we go. More names. Pray for me. <clears throat> also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hannah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, or they interpreted what Ezra was reading, so that the people understood the reading. So as they understand the implications 
of what Ezra has been reading to them, what started out as this uh, heads bowed, hands raised worship, switches to something completely different in verse 9. Their emotion shifts. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people. All right, so pause right there. Do you notice that? It's been Ezra reading to them. The Levites, you know, they went and they talked to people. But now, here's Nehemiah again. We have all the leaders here. The story that's been building and building, it's, it's crescendoing right here. It's all the leaders. They're speaking to all the people. And look at what they say. This day is holy. Or another way you could say it, this day is a special day to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people, there it is again, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So the people, as their gaze was directed at the greatness of God, they worship. But as they understand, as the, as the implications of this book are explained to them, what's, what's their response? Say weeping. Why are they weeping? As they hear the words of this law, they see themselves compared to the great God. And who are they in comparison to the great God, to the God who gave them this law? They're people that are full of guilt and condemnation and weakness and failure. But did you notice what the leaders tell them? They tell them, hey, stop crying. Has anybody tried that with their wife before? I wouldn't recommend it. But not that I have any experience. I've never done that before, right? But that's what the leaders tell the people three times. Look at it. Verse 9. Do not mourn or weep. Verse 10. Do not be grieved. Verse 11. Do not, do not be grieved. All right, I don't think they want the people to be grieved. But why? How in the world can the leaders tell the people to stop crying in this situation. Hey guys, this is, a, this is a special day. This is New Year's Day. We're supposed to celebrate today. Let's save the crying for Monday. Let's just be happy. Let's just, let's just celebrate today. No, that's not what's happening. What the leaders are doing is they're taking the people's gaze and they're redirecting it. You know, because up to this point, the people have, have correctly understood their weakness and that's a good thing. But they also need to correctly understand who God is. And they haven't gotten there yet. So that's what the leaders are doing with them here. So look at what verse 10 says. And this is, this is the focus of where we're going with this this morning. Verse 10. Then Ezra the priest, then, sorry, then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. So not only does Ezra say, hey, stop crying. He also says, hey, go take a trip to Lou's barbecue. Go grab some brisket. Get, get some sweet tea. Let's celebrate. And send portions to anyone who has nothing. Hey, if somebody doesn't have money to get some brisket, you buy them some brisket too. Why? Look at the rest of the verse. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. Here it is. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
the antidote to their weakness and failure, to their condemnation and their guilt, is to have their eyes on who? On the Lord. And to have a right understanding of who the Lord is. That's when they'll experience this joy that overcomes. You know, this is not a joy that's dependent on good circumstances. This isn't a joy that just, you know, ignores difficulty in their lives. This is a joy that goes deeper than that. It flows deeper than that. And this isn't just a joy that's, you know, from God. Like, God's like, oh, you guys look a little uh, sad today. Let me toss you down a little box of joy today so that you can, you can be happy on this day. No, that's not what this is. This is a joy from looking at God, from the Lord, their God, the personal God. Did you, did you notice the shift as we were reading through this passage of how the leaders refer to God? Look back at verse 1 with me. <clears throat> verse 1, it says, They told Ezra to bring the book of the law that the Lord had commanded Israel. Look at verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people worshipped the Lord. Verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God. But look how it changes in verse 9. He says, this day is holy to the Lord, what does it say? Your God. Verse 10. For this day is holy to who? Our God. God isn't just an impersonally great God. But what the leaders are pointing their eyes to is, this is the Lord, your God. This is the Lord, your God. The great God who sees their weakness, that sees their failure, that sees their vulnerability, is a God who is faithful, a God who is forgiving, is a God who is near. You know, God doesn't just wait. He doesn't just step back from them to see, all right, how's this story going to go? Are they going to get their act together? What does he do? He steps towards them. God is a God who steps towards his people. He's the Lord, your God. Look with me real quick, flipping your Bible to the book of Zephaniah. <clears throat> it's at the very end of the Old Testament. If you find Malachi, which is the last book, just flip a couple more books back. You got Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 742. Man, Zephaniah 3 is an incredible passage. I wish we had more time to dive into it this morning. But I want to look at it for just a second, look at a couple of verses, because the way that Zephaniah describes God is really similar. Actually, there's a lot of similar wording between Zephaniah and Nehemiah. And I think this description of God in Zephaniah 3 is going to help fill in the picture. It's going to help paint the picture for us in Nehemiah chapter 8. So look at Zephaniah 3 and verse number 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Do you notice the similar language between here in Zephaniah 3 and Nehemiah 8? Look at how Zephaniah 3.17 describes names the Lord. It says, the Lord, your God. Remember? It's the exact same way that Ezra referred to God in Nehemiah 8. It says that he is a mighty one, just like the great God in Nehemiah 8. We also see in verse 18, you who mourn. Do we see any mourning in Nehemiah 8? Yeah, people are bawling their eyes out from the law for the festival, which is a special day. We also see rejoicing and exultation, just like in Nehemiah chapter 8. But did you know that, notice the difference between this rejoicing and the rejoicing in Nehemiah chapter 8? It's interesting because here in Zephaniah 3, the people aren't told to rejoice. Who's the one rejoicing in this passage? It's the Lord. He's rejoicing in his people. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? He's the, the God that comes and he exalts. You know what the word exalts mean? It's not a word that I use very often, so I had to look it up. But the word exalts means to feel triumphant jubilation. Okay? So think about this. God is triumphantly jubilating about his people with loud singing. That's incredible. I can't even imagine what that's like. But if this is who God is... No wonder the leaders are telling the people, man, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is this how you see God? Do you see God as somebody who looks at you and wants you to just be overwhelmed with joy in him? Or do you see him more as like a, a heavenly traffic cop? You know, he's, he's far off. And the only time he comes near is when he's pulling you over for breaking his law. If this, is, if this is what we think about God, then we're thinking about the wrong kind of God. And of course, there's no joy in that kind of God. We'll look anywhere else. But what Ezra and the leaders say is, no, stop weeping. Yes, you're weak. Yes, you have failed. Yes, you're even going to fail him again as you step into this new year. But your strength comes not from yourself. Your strength comes from looking at him and experience joy, experiencing joy in him, the Lord your God. So look at how the people respond to this message. Verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The people went from looking at the greatness of God to seeing the implications of the law and looking at themselves. They went from worship 
to weeping. But when they hear the words of Ezra and the leaders, as they're pointed to a right understanding of who God is, their weeping turns into rejoicing. Their weeping turns into celebrating. They step into their new year celebrating in the joy of the Lord their God. Man, wouldn't it be awesome if Nehemiah just ended right there? All right, verse 12, it's over. Close the book. The end. That's awesome. But, unfortunately, it doesn't. There's a couple more chapters in Nehemiah. Let me, let me tell you how this book ends. So you get to chapters 9 and 10, and the people, again, remember, they're rejoicing in the Lord their God. And verses nine, or chapters 9 and 10, they, they're like, you know what, Ezra, we are going to commit to following the Lord our God. You get to verses, chapters 11 and 12, and the people say, you know, the city is rebuilt. Let's dedicate the city to God. We, we're ready. We're ready for this. And they're, they're living according to their New Year's resolutions, right? But then chapter 13 comes. Nehemiah has gone on a, on a work trip, and he comes back. And what does he find? All the plans, all the commitments, everything is falling apart. Just like the first two stories that we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah, this third story ends in the same way, with disappointment, with the people's failures. They didn't remain in the joy of the Lord. But you know what the good news is? God's strength, God's greatness is greater than their weakness. He was still the faithful God despite their chronic weakness. You know, through God bringing these waves of exiles back and through the people rebuilding the city, God is preparing the way for his Messiah who is going to come and who is going to once and for all rescue his people from their weakness, from their sin. And you know, here in Nehemiah 8, we see Ezra the priest who says, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. But you and I today in 2023 have a greater priest who says to us, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, we just got done with this Advent season. What did the angels say to the shepherds? They said, I bring you good news of great joy. Why? Because not only in, like in Nehemiah, did God speak words to his people, but God actually sent his word, Jesus, to be God with us. We just read Zephaniah 3. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Zephaniah 3. He is the God who is in our midst. You know, Jesus during his ministry on earth. He told the story of the prodigal son. Most of you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. What happens? The son betrays his father. He's guilty. He has no hope of a future. And he comes back to beg his father's forgiveness. And what does his father do for him? Before he can even get the words out of his mouth, his father runs to him and embraces him and celebrates that his son is back home. He celebrates the fact that he's with his son again. And this is exactly what God has done for us. He comes to us. He makes himself known to us. He celebrates over being close to us. And you know, not only did Jesus come to be close to us, 
he also took our weakness on himself. He experienced the depth of sorrow, the depth of weakness, by taking our guilt, our weakness, our shame, our loneliness on his cross. And through his resurrection, he takes our guilt and he replaces it with his eternal life in relationship with him. He will never leave us or forsake us. He has begun a work in us that he will bring to completion. So let me ask you all this. As you start this new year, what are you looking to to overcome your weakness? Are you looking at yourself? Your discipline is the joy of my being able to keep my New Year's resolutions my strength. Is the joy of being able to forget my past and just to be able to, to move into the future, is that your strength? For those of you who are maybe like, man, I'm excited about 2023. I'm excited about what's going to come. Is the joy of good circumstances your strength? Are you looking to someone else maybe? Is the, the joy of my family or the joy maybe even of my community group is my strength? Or are you looking to even a wrong understanding of who God is? If you're looking to anything else to overcome your weakness in 2023, other than the Lord your God, other than the Lord who is near, it will fail you. So how do we experience this overcoming joy? Today, this year, look to Jesus. And as you start seeing yourself taking your eyes off of Jesus and back onto your weakness and your insecurities and your struggles, Look back to Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done for you. And look look at what he says is true of you in him. This is why we gather on Sundays, so that we can continually be pointed back to a right understanding of our great God. This is why we take the Lord's Supper together as a physical expression that we are participants in Jesus' life that we are united together with him. This is why we gather together in community groups and why discipleship is so important, so that we can point each other personally, specifically, back to the truth of who Jesus is, who is the object and the source of our joy. What would it look like if our church was a church this year that was marked by this type of joy that overcomes. What would it look like for those that are, that are sitting here that are saying, man, I am experiencing this joy in the Lord and I'm walking in that with my focus on a right understanding of who he is. What would it look like for you to walk alongside somebody else who's feeling the guilt, who's feeling the weakness of themselves? What would it look like for you to point them to a right understanding of who the Lord our God is. Wouldn't that be awesome for our church to be marked by this in 2023? I hope that it'll be true of us this year, that like Peter said about the believers in 1 Peter 1.8, that though we have not seen him, we love him and rejoice 
with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's pray. God, I praise you that you are the God who is near, that you're not a God who stands far off waiting for us to try to figure things out, that you don't leave us when we stumble and fall, but that you are a God who continues to be faithful, who continues to express your greatness to us, even in the midst of our weaknesses. I pray for those of us who have a hard time seeing our weakness, that we would have a right understanding of ourselves, that we would recognize that there is a spiritual battle that we are stepping into in 2023. And I pray, God, as we see our weakness, that that it wouldn't cripple us, that it wouldn't keep us from worship, but that it would drive us to a right understanding of who you are, that we could experience a joy that overcomes our weakness, that we would experience joy in the God who exults over his people with loud singing. So I praise you for who you are. Jesus, thank you for what you have done on the cross for us and in your resurrection. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.